0: Welcome to AEM Early Access, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. One of the most heartbreaking and difficult things we as emergency clinicians deal with is child abuse. Most of us have been in the position of questioning whether a pediatric injury might be non-accidental in nature, and wondering whether our suspicions are enough to warrant escalation into further investigation, which, of course, is very stressful for all parties concerned, and yet, we are very rightly afraid of missing child abuse, which could have terrible consequences. Today, we're talking about a new article in AEM which might begin to help us make those decisions a little easier. It's entitled Identifying Maltreatment in Infants and Young Children Presenting with Fractures Does Age Matter? A Pediatric Trauma Society, Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, and Ray E. Helfer Society Evidence Based Review. Today on the podcast, we have authors Dr. Ian Mitchell, Dr. Bradley Norat, and Dr. Sabine McGuire, here with us to discuss it. Don't forget to read the full text of this article, available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Open access for the month of January 2021. Hi, everybody. Thank you all for joining us today to talk about this important paper. And could you each introduce yourselves so that the listeners know which voice is whose?
1: Sure, I'll get started. My name's Ian Mitchell. I'm a pediatric surgeon, and I'm the trauma medical director for uh, Level 3 Pediatric Trauma Center at the Children's Hospital of San Antonio. I'm the outgoing chair of the PTS Guidelines Committee, and I'm now going to be leading our trauma guidelines hub, which you can find at pediatrictraumasociety.org. Excellent.
2: I'll go next. Um, I'm Bradley Norat. I'm a child abuse pediatrician and medical director of the child protection team at Children's Hospital in Michigan in Detroit. Um, I'm also the chair of the clinical guidelines committee for the Right Health for Society.
3: Wonderful. Hi, I'm Sabine McGuire, a pediatrician and honorary research fellow at Cardiff University in the UK. I've been jointly responsible for leading a program of systematic reviews of child abuse and neglect over the past twenty years.
0: So thank you all very much. So let's just get into your your paper. So the objective of this study was to provide evidence-based recommendations to guide us on which children presenting with a fracture when not involved in a, a publicly witnessed incident, which of those children should undergo a comprehensive child abuse evaluation based on their age, regardless of other social or subjective features. So Before we get into the meat of your paper, I would like to talk a little bit about some background and the motivation behind this study. So, tell us about the scope of this problem and what are some of the challenges that clinicians currently face when deciding which children to refer for child abuse evaluation?
1: Gita, thanks very much for inviting us to talk about this. Um, Unfortunately, As you know, and as most of your listeners are going to know, that this is child abuse is a serious issue that is all over. Um, We had 2018 data said we had about 1,700 or 1,800 pediatric deaths alone from child abuse and neglect. And really, if you think about it, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, At our institution at Children's, we haven't had a death this year, but we've seen 46 kids presenting with confirmed abuse. Um, and that doesn't include any of our suspected cases, kids we've missed, or kids that never presented to the emergency department at all from our standpoint. so um, And most of these kids are not going to present to a specialty children's hospital. They'll come to community Ds, community hospitals, and their primary care providers. So this is a huge problem. Um, and to the emergency department practitioner, abuse is particularly thorny. Um, This is not appendicitis. This is not uh, a coronary artery disease. The histories are misleading. There are no gold standards for diagnosis. Um, And we know that there's inherent individual racial and socioeconomic bias on who you evaluate and how you evaluate. And so this is a difficult problem. Um, For our end, we thought, look, fractures are a common presentation to the emergency department in abuse cases, and they can be objectively assessed. You can get an image and say that there's a fracture. So we felt that this was an area where you could get uniform recommendations and they may be possible. To that end, age is a reasonable and reproducible measure. It has a correlation with abuse overall. We know that more abuse happens in younger children, and we wanted to explore that relationship between age and the abusive fracture population.
0: Thank you. So uh, for those of us who work in community centers, can you give us an idea of the complexity that's involved in a comprehensive child abuse evaluation, which typically happens at larger centers or tertiary care centers? I mean, you mentioned in your paper that this varies from center to center, but what in general um, would we expect?
2: So when we look at a child abuse evaluation, it's really meant to assess injuries that aren't readily apparent on our initial physical exam. So how I like to think about it is there's a few core initial tests that should be performed. And then we also have secondary additional tests that can be ordered after that initial examination and evaluation. So when I talk about the initial studies, what I'm talking about is the is a non-contrast head CT in all children under 12 months. Um, a skeletal survey, which comprises 21 different images of the skeleton in all kids, uh, less than 24 months, a CBC, and then screening for abdominal trauma with a CMP, amylase, and lipase. So that's the, that's the initial test. And then we look at, the secondary tests, um, those are ordered based on that that initial evaluation. So if there's any visible injuries, we want to make sure to photo document those. Um, we get an MRI of the brain and C-spine sometimes, uh, ophthalmology examination, contrast CT of the abdomen, some bone health labs, and then also a coagulation evaluation. Um, those are really the the key tests. Um, there are some additional studies that are ordered on a case by case basis, but they're they're more rare.
0: So uh, that seems like a a really good reason that we would want to differentiate which children need to be routinely referred and which don't. Um, because obviously now child abuse evaluations are they're time consuming, they're resource consuming. They're stressful for the family, they're stressful for the child, there's radiation involved. Um, so that brings us back to your paper and uh, the need for guidelines. So, so first, uh, which specific factors were you looking into? and why? Why these fractures in particular? And then, sort of related to that, you, you, and we can get into this later, you excluded studies related to skull fractures and other specific fractures. So maybe you can explain why.
3: Well, we know from previous research by Thorpe et al., Chandra et al., and others that up to one in three children who present to hospital with an abusive fracture have previously been seen with traumatic injuries, but abuse was missed and they were sent back home to the same environment their abuse is only recognized either when they represent with another injury or in a number of instances because they've now been fatally abused. And when you look at which children are being missed, those who present with extremity fractures are among the most likely, particularly if their boys are attending a non-paediatric facility. We also know the children who present from white two-parent families are very likely to have abuse missed when they first turn up. So we decided to focus on fractures which commonly present to aid the clinicians so they'd know which of those children should have the evaluation. We looked at rib fractures and we set out to look at all limb fractures um, that included upper and lower limb and hands and feet. In fact, we found inadequate amounts of high quality data to examine uh, radius or ulnar and tib and fib fractures, which is why we resulted in working specifically with rib fractures, femoral and humerus. We didn't include skull fractures because this overlaps with abusive head trauma. And that would require a completely different search strategy because many children with abusive head trauma may actually present with non-specific signs of intracranial injury, fussiness, irritability, seizure, etc. And we wanted to focus specifically on those presenting with a fracture.
0: Okay, thank you. So can you quickly walk us through the process from the initial systematic review you, you did to how the recommendations were then generated?
1: Gita, originally we wanted to use the grade system. So using grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation, which has really become a powerful tool for making recommendations in a lot of healthcare, but we ran into we ran into significant difficulties with PICO questions that would apply. And a lot of this is just related to the nature of abuse. Again, you have difficulties with determining, you know, exactly who was abused and how you're going to decide that. And another that, that was a main issue was focusing around the appropriate comparator. The C in the PICO question is your comparator population. Mm -hmm. And of course, we don't have a study that would report on children who weren't evaluated for abuse, but we still knew that they were abused. Um, And so it's a bit of a catch-22. All we have are studies that said, we evaluated these children for abuse and this many were abused, but we don't have the converse. Um, So in that case, our panel used all of the principles of grade Uh, all the quality of evidence principles involving bias heterogeneity and such and and performed a, a systematic review of the data involving fractures uh, we did have, a, in the days pre-COVID, we had a two-day in-person meeting, if any of you remember what those were like. Um, and we had a consensus threshold that we decided, look, we're going to, as a, as a group and as a panel, we're going to set where we think that screening re- should be routine. So certain so number of kids come in with X fracture, then they should be routinely reviewed for uh, abuse. And we set that bar at 10% um, after probably a good eight hours of debate. Um, And what was fascinating to me in that completely independently, completely separately, um, about three months after that, the group in England that was headed by Piers Mitchell, no relation, uh, Mm -hmm. made the exact same determination in their analysis. Mm -hmm. Um, So once we had that 10% study set, we evaluated our systematic reviews and then proceeded down the pathway to make our recommendations.
0: Excellent. So it seems like the papers you looked at varied greatly in how they defined child abuse criteria. Uh, can you explain how the definition of child abuse criteria affected quality ranking?
3: Well, this is always one of the thorniest questions when you're reviewing the literature relating to child abuse. Because there isn't a single gold standard test which will confirm or exclude abuse, inevitably authors have used a variety of definitions. But because the guidance that we wanted to provide was where a child abuse evaluation is mandated, we had to restrict our studies to those of the greatest surety of diagnosis of abuse. To do this, we used a modification of a rank of abuse scale that our group, the Core Info Group, have been using in a program of systematic reviews over the last 20 years. Essentially, we only included studies which had a group of abuse cases and non-abuse cases, so they had to be comparative studies, and where abuse had met the highest standards of confirmation. And that essentially included where it was either witnessed or admitted, or where a specialist child abuse professional or team had actually made that diagnosis during the hospital admission. Necessarily, that excluded a lot of studies familiar to people, but we felt it was vital to cut it at the highest standard.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. Uh, So before we move on, is there anything else you'd like to point out about the review?
2: I don't so much want to point out anything different, but just re-emphasize those two points that were just discussed. So so that 10% incidence of abuse uh, cutoff that we used, and then also only using the papers with the greatest reasonable certainty of a child abuse diagnosis, I think that really allowed us to make the best reasonable recommendations that we could.
0: Excellent. Okay. So uh, so let's just talk about the subsequent guideline development and the expert panel behind it. Can you describe the panel and their process behind developing the recommendations?
1: Absolutely. I think our our... Group started out as a a meeting at PTS, and everybody was looking at their phones when they asked who was going to lead this, and I wasn't, and I think it (laughs) became me. Um, But we grew very organically as different organizations ended up joining us. And so um, we ended up with a group of 12 people that included pediatric and adult trauma surgeon. Um, We had nursing. We had pediatric and adult emergency medicine trained folks, and we had uh, several child abuse pediatricians. Um, And in a full mea culpa, one specialty, which is absent, is orthopedics. And that was, uh, you can blame that entirely on me. Um, When it was pointed out that we didn't have any orthopedic surgeons, honestly, we are quite far in this process. Uh, We are going to work on securing the the endorsement of the Pediatric Orthopedic Society, and I will beg forgiveness in excluding them. And obviously, we'll intend to incorporate them on further work.
0: So, now finally, let's move to uh, the results and recommendations. So, um, let's talk about rib fractures first. So, the question we're answering is In young children presenting to a healthcare facility with a rib fracture, at what age should a routine evaluation for child abuse be performed? So, what findings did your review yield, and, and what are your recommendations?
1: There were, in this one, in RIBS, there were three relevant studies that we reviewed where we were able to provide a qualitative analysis and found an extremely high incidence of abuse. Um, It was 77% of children who presented under the age of three with rib fractures uh, were found to be abused. Now, those studies also contained enough data that we could do an analysis where you took out the patients who had a known medical reason, so they had a metabolic disease or they were post-surgical, and also the kids who were in a public accident, particularly motor vehicle collisions. So if you have a child under the age of three who isn't in a motor vehicle collision or a publicly witnessed accident and doesn't have a known metabolic disease, then the incidence of abuse goes up to 96%. So, I think this is no surprise probably to your listeners that it's pretty straightforward. If a child has rib fractures and doesn't fit those those specialty exceptions, and they really need to be screened for abuse without question.
0: Okay. Uh, now, humoral factors. So same question. Uh, at what age should it prompt a routine evaluation for child abuse and um, and what did you find?
2: So for a humerus, four studies met that inclusion criteria. In patients less than 18 months of age who presented with the humerus fractures, approximately 49% of them had abusive injuries compared to the older than 18-month cohort that was 2% of abusive injuries. Unlike the rib fracture data where, you know, medical reasons for the fractures and known accidental mechanisms can be excluded, we weren't able to to do that with the humerus fractures. So, so I think that's really important because this this 49% is probably an underestimate of those abusive injuries in those kids less than 18 months. So, so we're really using any child who presents to the ER um, who's less than 18 months old with a humerus fracture should be evaluated uh, for child maltreatment.
0: Okay. Um, and so last bone, femur fractures, uh, same question. What were the, what were the findings and, and what are your recommendations?
2: So I yeah, I thought femur was pretty interesting. So so even though the the rib studies had the highest percentage of abusive injuries, um, for the femur studies we were able to look at two different age cutoffs. So. For the 18month cutoff there was a 24% incidence of abusive injuries and then when we were also able to look at a 12month uh, cutoff and then the abusive incident raised to 34 um, percent For similar reasons to the humorous data you know both of both of these percentages are likely underestimates of the true proportion of abusive injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, and and again just going back to that panel, uh, um, that panel discussion for the cutoff of 10%. You know, both of these are above that 10% threshold. So, so we would recommend that any child who presents with the femur fracture less than 18 months of age should be evaluated for abuse.
0: Okay. I think that these are going to be very, very helpful um, for, for those those of us who don't work in tertiary care centers and work in, in the community. I think that this is going to be really um, very, very helpful. So, uh, so to close this out, I would love to hear your thoughts about how you hope these recommendations will improve our care and what you think needs to come
3: next. Well, it's a very sad fact that over the last 21 years, we've seen little or no improvement in our ability to recognize abuse when children present the ED with traumatic injuries. We now have fantastic programs to support families when abuse is recognized. We've got Triple P, Incredible Years, Healthy Families America, and we can work with children to help them recover from the trauma of having been abused. The challenge is that when that child presents to the ED, this may be the only chance we have to stop the cycle of abuse. So we sincerely hope that these evidence-based guidelines, which are simple to follow, age-based, simple, obvious fractures, mean that we don't continue wasting these opportunities.
1: Keith, I'll add in one extra piece. Please. On the where do we go from here, there's a couple opportunities that the our guideline, I think, presents. We do need mostly institutional studies now to take a look. People can settle these in in their facility and see how they want to implement them. And then we need to study implementation because I think having the guidelines is great, but we also need to really look at how they're being used. And also, we have a list of fractures that we really couldn't get, didn't have the this high quality, best data that we need. And I think that now it's on us to generate that better high quality data and fill in the gaps. Um, and then also for the ED practitioners, there is there is an upcoming paper that's sort of a how to tackle the problem that's, that's coming out there. The ACS, American College of Surgeons, has a best practice guidelines that... Are very general, but there's are, should be a paper coming out that's a collaboration between Western Trauma and Pediatric Trauma Societies that looks at an evidence-based algorithm that can be and it's that's meant to be used in the community setting. So it certainly isn't the only one that's out there. It won't be non-controversial, but I think it really starts to answer that question: Is okay? Now we're real getting really good at helping. Um, children and families with abuse. How do we how do we get to that identification piece?
0: Well, thank you so much to all of you for your work in this arena. It's it's tough to talk about. It's tough to to see these cases. Um, I think that all of us uh, would love to be able to say that we're doing a better job than we're doing right now. So thank you.
2: Thank you for having us.
0: Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. The full text of this article is available on our blog at brownemblog.com, open access for a limited time. Check out all of our podcasts on iTunes. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.